You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. It's Tuesday, December the 21st. It's grey and cool here in TW11 this morning, but no reported significant weather issues ahead of the holiday period, save for the fact there's going to be quite a bit of rain in the Kempton area, which could change things around for the King George VI on Boxing Day, which of course is the showpiece in Great Britain. Of much more concern is whether there will be full crowds at the racecourses after the Christmas period. The government as yet rather undecided after Boris Johnson's address to the nation last night. That hasn't, however, stopped the Welsh First Minister Mark Drakeford imposing regulations of his own and that has had a significant impact on Coral Welsh National Day, the 27th of December, which will now be run, I'm sorry to say, behind closed doors. In a moment, we'll be hearing from David Yates, newsboy from the Daily Mirror, also from Simon Clare, director of Entain, the parent company of Coral, the sponsors of that race, and from Joe Tizard, co-trainer of Native River, who is back in the Coral Welsh National, a race he won several seasons ago. He'll be talking about him and his King George Hope lost in translation and fellow Welsh National runner, Elegant Escape. But we need to find out whether you will be able to go racing over the Christmas period and what is our best guess at reading between the lines of what the government is coming out with. One man who normally is ahead of the curve on this is the Racecourse Association Chief Executive, David Armstrong, who joins me now. Uh, David, what are your sources in government telling you about our prospects for, for the coming days well i think the first thing that we've noticed nick of course overnight is that the welsh have um gone to a behind closed doors solution which will have a, a big impact at chepstow for the, the welsh grand national for example uh, and that's going back to a situation that we still last saw across the english race courses in about aprilish last year in terms of england itself there's no firm guidance yet where we're going next if we're going anywhere uh, government are obviously waiting to see carefully what happens with Omicron and the impacts of it and hospitalizations and all that sort of stuff before they make a final decision on any further restrictions. So at the moment, we are business as usual as we were from the 15th of December with COVID certification and, that, and that's going well and working well. Um, and we will keep all our fingers crossed that we stay that way. So you're not getting any vibes from the DCMS that you're suddenly going to have to pull the lever and push all this behind closed doors in England and Scotland? Uh, not yet, but it obviously does remain a risk. I think the Scottish have said they're not going to make any further adjustments before, I think it was Boxing Day. Um, and in England, we wait and see. Uh, how quickly that might happen is hard to tell. And, and whether we would have to, you know, whether, whether you get a week's notice or we get a day's notice, we, we just don't know at this point. Uh, we have to have to wait and see. Okay. Are, are there any um, ways in which these regulations were implemented in the in the past during the pandemic that could inform us as to how we might be able to carry on should more restrictions be brought in? Are you thinking in your head, if X happens, then we have to do Y and so forth? A little bit, yes, because actually over the, the, the course of the pandemic, we've tried out a lot of different solutions already. So we have various solutions on the shelf to use, should, should we be required to do so. One option is if we go to the behind closed, closed door solution like the Welsh, which I hope is the sort of worst case scenario, 
we ended up going back to what was called step two. And if you remember the government's step process that brought us out of lockdown in, in the spring and summer of this year, the step two was the step where uh, there would be behind closed doors plus owners uh, allowed on the race course. And that, and that was, say, roughly April time last year. But if we aren't as, uh, if it isn't as severe as that, and we go to some other form of restriction, it could well be similar to the, the level we had at, at step three, where you remember we were restricted to 4,000 people on a race course, uh, with certain exceptions for the ERP program. That, that's another option. What is helpful, if it, if it does go, whichever way it goes, is that we do go back and use a previously adopted step, if you like, because it means we have all the protocols ready to go and we can implement it very quickly. Also, because you're now requiring people to show a COVID vaccination passport or a negative lateral flow test, is that going to stand you in good stead? Can you go to your friends at the DCMS or the Cabinet Office and say, right, here we go, everyone's vaccinated or everyone's tested, therefore you don't need to be as draconian as you were before? Yes, and we have done that. In fact, that's a, it always feels like you've been reading my emails from yesterday, Nick, because that is a very similar email. They go, you, shouldn't, you, sh- you should know by now they divert straight into my inbox. Uh, yeah, I was beginning to realise that, actually. Um, yes, I, I, we, we wrote to DCMS exactly on those lines yesterday, as I'm sure did all the, other, all the other major sports as well, because every other sport has implemented COVID certification as well. So there's a strong argument that the combination of booster jabs and COVID certification makes the environment much safer, and we made that point yesterday. That was David Armstrong, the chief executive of the Racecourse Association. This is David Yates, newsboy from the Daily Mirror. What do you make of that, Dave? And what do you think the next few days are going to hold? Yeah, I, I was quite reassured by listening to David Armstrong there. Although, to a sense, in a sense, he's almost as much in the dark as the rest of us. Um, just to he he mentioned there uh, step two and step three. Just to uh, just to go back and uh, to to March the the end of March when uh, ahead of step two, which I think actually took place on. April the 10th, uh, two owners were, al- were allowed uh, back into the races, so therefore it was no longer behind uh, closed doors. And step three, see that was on May the 17th, when up to 4,000 racegoers uh, were allowed back in. Of course, step four was, was June uh, the 21st, which was a return to normality. So um, that's where we are. We've lost Wales, with regard to uh, the Welsh National on the 27th of this month, we'll, we'll talk about that shortly. Um, in, in, a, in a wider sense, politicians over the last couple of days have been apt to rule nothing in and, and nothing out. And even for someone who isn't perhaps instinctively uh, sympathetic towards the Boris Johnson government, I think one can appreciate why uh, the exponential rise of cases of the uh, Omicron variant makes things uh, very difficult to predict. I think it was Sunday morning, uh, Sajid Javid, the health minister, said that you know, they could, couldn't rule out further restrictions. That line was uh, trotted out again by Dominic Raab yesterday morning. Then, of course, we had Boris Johnson uh, at five o'clock yesterday. And once again, the prime minister said uh, that essentially nothing was ruled in, nothing was ruled out. I, I, I have some sympathy uh, with Boris Johnson. That's a phrase I thought I probably would never say. But He's obviously between uh, a rock and a hard place politically at the moment, isn't he? We, we've, he's suffered some some bad results over the last uh, week or so. North Shropshire on Thursday, the the party gate 
uh, scandals return uh, day by day. He's got to appease the right wing of his party by trying not to impose further restrictions. And of course, he's getting the worst case scenario from Sage, who are who are putting further restrictions forward as a as a, a, a very viable option. In terms of the government, we're still talking about expectation management, aren't they? They're preparing us for the worst. And then when we don't get that, uh, we'll get headlines that, uh, that, that Boris has saved Christmas. The, the, the Daily Mail headline this morning uh, declaims rejoice, Christmas is looking safe. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm not quite sure we're there yet. Uh, but obviously, you know, we're now on December the 21st. So even allowing for uh, what is a, a, a rapidly changing picture, I think that we're edging closer uh, to having, I, I hope with my fingers crossed, uh, a crowd for, um, for, for Kempton on Boxing Day and for the King George. Yeah, and equally important, all those other fixtures on Boxing Day and the 27th, yeah, around whom an awful lot of you know, annual finances are based, a lot around whom a lot of budgets are placed, because you know you're going to fill out those smaller race courses on those days. We heard from David Armstrong there, the lead story was the fact that you know, Wales goes behind closed doors because of First Minister Mark Drakeford's ruling at midnight last night. It's a huge impact on the, on the Coral Welsh National. We're going to hear from Simon Clare, a director of, of Entain, the parent company of Coral, in a few moments' time. And then from Joe Tizard, who, who co-trains Native River, who is going to run in, in the Coral Welsh National. But it, you really do have to feel for Ark and everybody at Chepstow and, and everyone who was intending to go to, to the, the Welsh national dave because it's a it's a race that's all about the the crowd and the noise and the atmosphere yes it, it is in very large part and i really applaud uh what coral have done and simon clare personally who, who is a, a friend of mine and i know how hard uh, simon has worked over the over the last few years to make this a real occasion with the the guardsman and the trophy uh we've certainly had bryn turville uh singing before uh, the start of the race in the past. And, and it, it's one of those races that over the last few years really has become a great occasion. I think the crowd is normally in the region of 7,000. Obviously, we won't have uh, them this year. Secret Reprieve won the race uh, last year in, before uh, empty grandstands. And I'm afraid it's going to be uh, the same again here. The, the, the race in terms of its turnover is normally around uh, the top 20. In the last couple of years, it's, it's been a, uh, number 20, I think, in terms of turnover of the, of, of the UK uh, races throughout the year. And in that sense, uh, of course, whilst it is a great occasion on course, it's also extremely important in terms of uh, off-course turnover and retail. And I suppose that's why they're looking to uh, keep it where it is in, in terms of time and place. Because uh, if you were to move either, then of course, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a central part of the, of the Christmas program on December the 27th and, and if you move it then obviously that affects that and it affects it in a negative way. I'd love to see Native River uh, win, the, win the race. He, he won it as a six-year-old on his way up in 2016 and I wouldn't want to write him off just yet despite that uh, 25 length thumping by Protectorat at 
Aintree on his return to action. Uh, statistically, it's worth throwing in this one, though, Nick. In the last 50 runnings, uh, two 11-year-olds have won the race. Happy Spring in 1967 and Mountainous, uh, who won it as an 11-year-old for Kerry Lee in 2015. Of course, he was a repeat winner because he had won it three years earlier. Well, Joe Tizard coming up shortly, but first of all, Simon Clare, director of Coral, the long-standing sponsors of the Welsh National. I began by putting it to him that this must have come at some significant cost to the industry. I think, look, the, the interesting thing about the, the race course that works, is, well, they'll probably be able to divulge, but there is a compensation plan being put in place. I, I read that by, by the Welsh government. So, so hopefully some of that will be mitigated. Clearly, the race really goes ahead. I mean, that's the interesting thing with racing, which we, we, we learned very, very well through the, through the, you know, the, the heart of the pandemic in, in 2020 to 21. You know, each, for racing behind closed doors is still far better than no racing at all because, of course, it feeds uh, the offshore industry the betting shops, people watching at home on ITV, on the racing channels, and and, and it generates a huge amount of money with, through through the levy, media rights, etc. So actually, the, the real impact is is, is on is at the event itself. Um, and you know, I think the crowd would have been in the realms of about nine thousand. Um, you know, the national anthem would have been belted out for the race. It's a great event. Anyone who's been to the Coral Welsh Grand National will know it's just it's, it's usually freezing, often <laughs> often raining or snowing. But but it is it, it's it's a, it's a great Welsh event. You know, the, the music pours out, the, the, the horses parade, and it's a great race. You know, we've been sponsoring it since 1973. So I think it's that's the, you know I think a lot of the impact will be mitigated in financial terms. It's more just the, the huge shame that a, an iconic uh, Welsh event, the biggest race station in Wales won't take place in the way it should for the second year running so it's just that it's, there's an emotional sort of devastation as much as anything I'm sure Phil Bell and the team could talk a bit more about what the financial impact is um, uh, right so you, you, as you say the sort of soul of the race goes in in some respects and of course over time the sort of drip drip of that becomes becomes pretty damaging um, does it rankle you the inconsistency of of race courses not being able to open big wide open space yet people can still go down the pub and watch it i mean in in the same area yeah i mean you say we're, we're in the current climate where you have to almost be so careful with what you say because clearly there are there are reasons why these decisions are being made and we're all trying to we're all reading the news we're trying to read the responsible news and not social media and, and the less responsible media and just really understand what the you know what we're trying to deal with now because clearly the world's moved on we've had vaccinations we're all having boosters you're looking at you know uh, other countries and how they're dealing with it but the inconsistency is, 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 is the frustration here that people that made a decision in wales uh, to, to, to close down and out make what is fundamentally an outdoor sporting event and yet there are pubs clubs bars all, all, all remaining open but also the fact that it clearly you know it is a it is a we are on an island, and, and people will be able to go down the M4 to Kempton on the 27th. They'll be able to go to Cheltenham on New Year's Day, where there'll be 30,000 rather than 9,000, I think it is, or certainly 25,000 or something at Cheltenham, yeah, which is, what, half an hour's drive from over the border. And so it, at the moment, okay, this could all change. We may be, we may be, we may be moving towards similar similar uh, restrictions in England we just don't know so I suppose it's, there's, there's always a, there's always you always end, to end up sort of having a bit of a rant about the, the inconsistency so we'll see how we go but it's just it's just it is just frustrating I know it's a huge day for what you know it's not just racing it's rugby there's football going on in Wales oh, you know on the 26th and 27th which again will which will be impacted so um but the decision we made we have to live with it obviously um, and, and, and do the best we can Simon Clare their director of Coral now it would be quite something crowd or no crowd if Native River 
were to win a second Coral Welsh National fully five years after his first in 2016. So much water under the bridge since then, including three Denman chases, a many clouds chase, a Cotswold chase, and the small matter of the Cheltenham Gold Cup, in which he's subsequently been placed twice. Joe Tizard is the man perhaps most closely associated with the training of this horse, together with his father, Colin. And I began by asking him what had prompted them to go to Chepstow with a big weight. Hi, Nick. Um, just lack of options, really. You know, he's not a King George horse. We've tried that, and Kempton doesn't suit him. Um, so there's not really a race this time of year for him. You know, as he's got older, he's, he's become sort of ground dependent, and we, we promised that we would run him on in the right conditions. And we just we gave ourselves the option, and um, and the more more we sort of Dad and I and Garth and Anne have spoken about it, the the more tempting it's, it's become. You know, we, we appreciate it. It's, it's never easy top weight in a handicap, but um, he's not actually carrying anymore. You know, he's been he's used to carrying that top weight in the conditions races and things. He's just got younger horses with less weight than them. But um, but really the conditions suit him to a T and that sort of, sort of swung us. Everywhere else, you know, he is he's flat to the boards against in these grade ones. So, um, so it would be lovely for him, you know. He's um he's came he came out of the many clouds really well. We took him for a little away day at Lark Hill yesterday, and um he's he's in beautiful form. Like we know he's not getting any younger and that, but he should um he should love he should love it, and um and he dictates the conditions a little bit because he's in it. Um, who's going to ride him, um, uh, Joe? I'd imagine it will be um, it will be John Joe. Uh, you know, he's, he's ridden him a couple of times before. Brendan, Brendan will have the option, but he hit him in the elegant escape. Um, I have got to talk to Garth this morning because I've I've declared him for the five day stage. But it's um, you know, <laughs> the, the, our, our claimer could claim off of him. I don't know if that's the route we'll take, but you can claim in a Welsh national. So that just there will be something I'll, I'll put to, to Garth. But I'd imagine I'd imagine it'll be. Brendan or John Joe, most likely John Joe. Okay, and you mentioned Elegant Escape. Um, is it is Native Rivers? Do you think capable of giving that kind of weight to Elegant Escape? I don't think there's a I don't think there's a great deal between them. Um, you know, Elegant Escape is he's been in all season. We were going to run him. The original plan was to go for a beach to chase with him, but but we weren't going to do that without a prep run. So the grain this autumn is stop that being being able to happen. Um, you know, he's a previous winner as well. It's, um, we just gave him a spin over two miles just to sharpen everything up. And there's not too much between them. You know, they, the, the one thing with both of them is they've got their conditions. But the handicapper perhaps hasn't given Elegant Escape that much respite for a, for a season off. Mm. Yeah, the way you're talking, it sounds as though Brendan might jump on Native River after all. Well, I think be, I think I think Garth will give him the option. So it, it, it doesn't matter too much either way because both both of them have ridden both horses. So, um, so I'm pretty relaxed, jockey wise. He'll be even more relaxed if he wins the King George on Lost in Translation. Uh, uh, can you realistically go into this race with with more confidence, given that given that it's not exactly been his best friend twice in the past? No, but there's been reasons. There's been reasons um, for the two in the past. You know, he perhaps had a harder race in the Betfair the first year, and then, then, he, then he bled, and then last year he was wrong. So, um, the horse is in is in lovely form, but that's that's not. Um, this is another a bit another big step. You know, it was, it was 
fantastic to have him back at Ascot and and be somewhere somewhere near back towards his best. But um, but he needs to go again. Um, I think he's come out of Ascot really well. Again with him, you know, it's, if if it was going to be, I know there's a bit of rain forecast Christmas Day and Boxing Day, but you know, it's, it's, he's got his ground. That's that's the sort of key, you know. Kempton isn't going to change overnight, so um, if it was much, if it was heavy ground, we wouldn't be going. But um, but he's got his ground, and you know, the, we're, we're happy to take our chance. That's Joe Tizard. Tizard's have got a lot to look forward to over the Christmas period, as have we. I hope, uh, Dave Yates. Um, what are you most looking forward to? Right, obvious answer, but it, it has to be the King George. Uh, Klondas Oboe coming back and looking for uh, a third victory in the race. Delighted to see that Minella Rindo, the uh, Cheltenham Gold Cup winner, is going to be in opposition. And of course, Frodon was a sensational story in 2020 and would be uh, barely less so were he to come out on top and, and back up uh, that victory of last Christmas. We know that the King George is a race where, unlike perhaps the Cheltenham Gold Cup, uh, multi, uh, multiple winners uh, have been frequent over the decades. So that's the obvious one. I'm also looking forward to the Corto Star Novices chase, though, that clash between Brave Man's Game, who's been a really impressive novice thus far for Paul Nichols, and Ahoy Senor, who was simply breathtaking at Newbury on the Friday of the Labrooks Trophy meeting. Uh, those two horses look really exciting novices. So, yeah, uh, the, the King George is obviously the, uh, the one that one's looking forward to most, but the Corto Star Novices chase also looks uh, very exciting in anticipation. It's Tuesday, which means we go around the bloodstock world with our friends at Weatherby's. The 2022 Weatherby Stallion book is out right now, and the Global Stallions app has been refreshed with new entrants. It will not surprise you to know that a, a much longer-time supporter of the Stallion book is Cheveley Park Stud. So I'm relatively close to home today in Newmarket, one of the longest, most established, most celebrated studs in the United Kingdom, famous for those red, white, and blue silk stud uh, established uh, by David and Patricia Thompson in its modern incarnation, uh, managed for so long by Chris Richardson, who's with me now. Um, Chris, it, it's great to catch up and have a little bit of time to linger over what's been an extraordinary few decades for the stud. And it would be remiss of us not to start with the late David Thompson, uh, who passed earlier this year and whose legacy, together with his, his wife Patricia, has been a pretty remarkable one, hasn't it? Just tell us how remarkable. Yes, no, it has been a, um, a fantastic sort of part of history, really. I mean, if you consider that uh, David um, Thompson decided to acquire Chibi Park Stud uh, 46 years ago, uh, you know, going, going back to the very beginning when they bought their first horse, as, as I've mentioned before, but uh, Music Boy was uh, bought for 2,000 guineas at the Doncaster sale. Um, he uh, was put into training. He was uh, um, successful at Royal Ascot. He went on to win the, the, the gym crack. And I remember being told, because um, it was well, well beyond my time, that um, you know he was uh, advised that probably it wasn't very sensible to stand Music Boy um, as a stallion. Um, but as is, uh, was, the, was the charm and, 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 and uh, wonderful magic of David Thompson, he said, oh, well, that's uh, not what I want to do. I'm going to stand him. And uh, from his first crop of a very small book, he was leading first season sire. The, the truth of it, it strikes me listening to you talk about David Thompson is that he was a, a very singular man. He had his own ideas and, and you, were, you were there as a guide. 
Yes, I mean, you know, David Minton was uh, there initially. Um, I think from uh, 75 to when I joined in, in 87, um, there wasn't a huge amount of um, sort of daily involvement, um, but they did pop up and uh, look at the stud and uh, were involved. And then in, in 86, uh, David Minton was very much the, um, um, the, the, the person who, um, to, you know, took the bull by the horn, so to speak, and uh, was, um, you know, understood exactly where they were coming from. Um, and we sort of teamed up to, to buy a few mares um, in America um, and then yearlings as, as the years progressed. Um, and it, it was just, uh, yeah, it was just magic that uh, they, the passion and the enthusiasm, you know, was there and they were very proud of their colours. Um, and um, it's, it's um, you know, it's one of those sort of, uh, you know, opportunities that one, we, that one we embraced and I've been so fortunate to be involved with for so long. The key equine figure in, in Chibley Park stud over, over the last uh, couple of decades has been, has been pivotal. And, uh, another great loss this year, but what a life he had and, uh, and what a career. Um, what do you think made him special? What made him a, a, a sire that nobody had any great expectations of but ended up being one of the, one of the world's sort of leading stallion influences? Well, I, I sort of wish I knew, really. I suppose it was just one of those really fortuitous moments in in, uh, in time when uh, Bola Falcon, uh, who Mr. Thompson similarly was impressed by and uh, bought, uh, was in training with John Hammond and, um, um, you know, he won the lock engine and he came up, uh, up back to the stud um, and he was... Um, you know, just, uh, you know, just, it was just, we wanted to, to, to commit, which has very much been their way of, of making sure, uh, you know, if they st- stood a stallion, it, it was given every chance. And, and Pivotal was one of those fortunate scenarios where we had four or five uh, Colts by Pivotal. And at the time, the, the policy was still to, you know, to offer the Colts uh, at public auction. It was very much run as a business. Um, however, fortunately, Pivotal was the one that remained in the paddock and uh, the four other Colts that went to the sales also extremely well and uh, um, you know it was it was just uh, a huge amount of luck really that uh, we ended up with him and he was he was a sort of horse that uh, I was fortunate to have been there when he was born on the 19th of January and he you know he was sort of came into the world as a sort of rather big chestnut uh, rather surprising color considering uh, polar falcon was was bay um, and the first foal, the, 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 the first result of the first covering. And, um, you know, he was just from the word go. He just had that sort of wonderful, sort of impressive appearance. Um, in fairness, he wasn't 100% correct in front, I have to admit, at the time. Um, and um, I remember fondly when uh, Sir Mark uh, Prescott came to see him, uh, he, um, you know, he said, I said, Mr. and Mrs. Thompson would very much like you to train um, this son of Polar Falcon. And Sir Mark said, well, if Mr. and Mrs. Thompson would like me to train him, I'd be delighted to. So it was, uh, it was all, um, um, you know, just a, a, a sort of st- a start that was very sort of low key. Um, and as you say, I mean, he just... Um, impressed uh, from the word go and I remember Sir Mark ringing me saying I'm a bit I'm a bit confused as to what the trip might be for Pivotal and I said well bread as he is he's probably going to stay a mile maybe possibly a mile and a quarter and he said well he's not showing me that at home he's showing me plenty of speed and um, and sure enough that was the um, that was where he, his forte lay. 
But of course, that sort of pedigree and that perceived ability that he might stay a mile and a mile and a quarter started to come out in in the in the legacy that he left, both with his own with his own sons and daughters. I know he's had plenty of sprinters, but also as a as a broodmare sire, where he's now sort of a preeminent. I mean, to have had um, you know to be the the broodmare sire of twenty six Group One winners. Um, is uh, you know is just phenomenal and a, and a dream come true and I was very fortunate um, uh, when I worked in France I looked after Nuriev um, after he um, retired to start his first year before he went to America so my sort of link through Nuriev and uh, that line through to you know to Pivotal and now um, obviously through Kyliki and then to Twilight Sun um, you know it continues but yes I mean you know he had five furlong sprinters um, and you know he's produced um, you know classic winners um, and, and is, as, a, as a broodmare sire I mean, we've got Cracksman standing uh, across the road from us and love it continues to, to compete very uh, favourably and, and we've got our own voracious and we bred advertised who's standing at the national studs and there are many many more so it's just a, a phenomenal sort of story really where you know nobody could have really expected him to have done you know what he's done and and, and I, I often think how fortunate that, that we were that we retained him because it's a bit like sliding doors really you know he he might have been sold he might have been he may never have been given that particular chance you know he could have been gelded who knows but um we've got this uh, fantastic legacy through uh, remaining through one of his best sons suyuni um and it's we're thrilled to have obviously see sir mark's basilica continuing that line um you know going forward and you, as, as you were saying, Stan Twilight's son, who's doing really well now. He's a son of Kailaki, who was an absolute warrior for you for, for so many seasons. So the sire line is secure at, at Chibli Park for the time being. Uh, Mason, another one of the stallions, you, you stand as a son of Invincible Spirit, the July Cup winner. People often describe him as the best value stallion in the country. Dutch Art's been a, a grand servant. The horse I'm really interested in talking about is Ulysses. Um, by Galileo out of Lightshifer, by a Derby winner out of an, an Oaks winner. And, and the the emotional and financial investment your team have all put into making a bona fide good middle distance horse into a into a proper stallion standing in the UK. Just how challenging is that, Chris? Nowadays, yes, it was very challenging. But we we have some wonderful partners. Obviously, we were you know um, uh, the Nyakos family have, have continued their support. Um, they they might very much have, you know have been you know they, they're passionate about their horses. Um, I was fortunate enough to work years ago for um, Mr. Niarchos, um when I managed the stud farm in, in America. So we had a, a, a good link there. Um, but yes, I think once again, it comes back to David Thompson's sort of uh, foresight. He, he, he was always impressed with the horse. He, he loved um, the, the, the mating. He wanted, you know, he wanted a son of Galileo. Um, I think it was so exciting to have... Um, you know, a, a, a son who had, whose, whose mother had won, you know, Lightshift, who won the, um, uh, had won the Oaks. Um, and, um, you know, he was uh, one of those sort of horses that we, you know, he didn't, he, he ran once as a two-year-old, um, finished sixth, um, and on his second start as a, um, as a three-year-old, you know, he won his maiden by nine lengths. He was one of those sort of horses that immediately caught the imagination. And, uh, um Obviously, the, the the link there with with um, uh, Sir Michael Stout training uh, Ulysses was 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 wonderful because obviously we could see what he was doing and how he was you know performing on the gallops. Um, and yes, I mean we we you know it was a bit of a departure from us. We had been so successful with 
sprinters primarily, um, and our client base was very much sort of sprinter orientated. Um, so we were, uh, it was a bit of a challenge, but um, uh, it's been exciting. We, we were, you know, the, the influence of Peter on our, of, of Pivotal on our, our broodmare band is, is, is almost 75%. So to have uh, a son of, of Galileo like Ulysses is able to mate uh, and cross so well with so many of our Pivotal line or Dutch art line mares um, gave us a great opportunity to, you know, to, to put hopefully some of the best to the best, um, as did um, um, Maria Niarcos, which uh, has resulted in so many of their good horses, um, you know, having won this year and, and uh, uh, you know, 17 winners, uh, seven, of them, seven of them first time out winners. I think that is probably the most important statistic, uh, which is, uh, you know, which is great. I wanted to ask you from your perspective, because you've been at, at Chibley Park for, for so long, as, as we were saying at the beginning of the interview. Uh, and I sort of thought I knew exactly what the DNA of the of the stud was in terms of we were used to these beautifully bred mares winning Group One races for Sir Michael Stout and others, and then the the sort of really sort of sharp commercial instincts of the of the stallion operation. We've talked about Ulysses. We haven't talked about this slew of national hunt horses um, that, that have been sort of bold as a glorious googly to the sport over the last three or four years. Has that has that kind of sort of kept you on your toes in a different way? Um, yes, I mean, uh, you know, I freely admit that, um, uh, you know, that, that uh, you know, once again, David Thompson, um, uh, I, I, I chuckled when he when he said that he was getting rather bored um, over the winter months and wanted something to entertain him, and and therefore, uh, wouldn't this be something that uh, he could uh, very much enjoy when when uh, his wife um, was, uh, you know, very much the sort of. Uh, held the reins with regard to the stud and, and the flat horses. So, uh, yes, I think it was a, a, a fantastic um, um, addition uh, and his totally his idea to switch the National Hunt horses into running in the Chibli Park stud colours. Um, and um, he was extremely well advised. Uh, and, um, you know, some of the horses that he bought, sure, they cost a lot of money. And we all know how difficult it is to buy success, and very often that doesn't happen. Um, but uh, it, it was um, something that he set his set his heart on uh, in his latter years, and, and um, obviously it's it's sort of very sad that he, he never saw the results of, of of all that come to fruition at Cheltenham this year when uh, Chibi Park Stud were, were were leading were leading owners, but. Uh, there, there, it's, there's some fantastic horses there, and um, as I say, we're <clears throat> very much looking forward to um, the coming season. I'm sure. I mean, I, I, this is not a stable tour, uh, but you know, you could list these horses that if, if anybody in their entire ownership career had Alaho, Fernie Hollow, Enviolen, Aplutar at, at any given time, they'd think, well, th- that'll do. Th- thanks very much. And they're all within a, a year or two of each other, uh, age wise. I suppose. Yeah, it is fair to say Aplutar is going to head to the Savills Chaser warm favourite. Is is this going to be his year? Is this the year where where he he fulfils the late Mister Thompson's dream and wins the Cheltenham Gold Cup? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be wonderful? I mean, I think uh, he was certainly very impressive last time, um, and. Um, 
you know the Savills is is um, you know once again listen all those sort of races are highly competitive, um, a strong field. Um, we've seen plenty in the press of of, of uh, the opposition um, talking up um, you know many of the horses as we all do. Uh, I think certainly Aputara has got uh, a fantastic chance, and if uh, <clears throat> if we're lucky enough and everything goes according to plan and with a bit of luck, it would just oh. it's just wonderful to have that opportunity of, of lining up and. Um, and hopefully uh, dreaming the dream. And it did, I did cross my mind when, when I knew I was going to call you last night. I thought, I wonder how I wonder how Chris feels about uh, about sort of the, the responsibility for, for for management of of a ton of national hunting horses as well. Only because the the public look upon these horses in such a different way, and suddenly you're being asked about horses that that people feel a very very strong personal connection to, and it it must be quite different to being asked about you know, the great-grandchildren of Russian Rhythm or who's in the third dam or who's going to go for the Falmouth Stakes next weekend? Well, of course. Yeah, no, well, I, I think, you know, I think the wonderful thing is that, um, you know, Richard Thompson uh, has a huge passion for uh, uh, for the whole the whole operation, but um, has really um, taken the reins, I think, as far as, the, the you know, these National Hunt horses are concerned. And, and he and his partner, Michelle, and, and um, George, Louis, and Arthur all were in attendance uh, in Ireland, um, um, you know, for two fantastic wins and to see Alaho win um, uh, was, I think, just, um, you know, just a fantastic uh, spark for, for them. And, um, you know, I think that's that's the important thing, is the, is the, is the future of Chibi Park Stud um, and the format that it is in now. Uh, it would be lovely to see it, see it, um, you know, continuing. And I know that um, the uh, horses that we have at the moment um, are a very special bunch. Uh, and you know, whether they're, they're beyond uh, them, things will continue. But you, you just never know. I think it's like everything. It's a sort of passion that is has now been uh, passed passed on to maybe the younger younger generation and um whilst the, the stud can can focus on on the flat um you know richard and the family can can also enjoy and, and embrace uh, what has uh, what has been david thompson's legacy chris richardson there the managing director of chibley park stud my thanks to chris to joe tizard earlier in the show to david armstrong and to simon Clare. david yates newsboy from the daily mirror is still with me a busy tipping period for you over Christmas, Dave. You'll be burning the midnight oil over the next few days, I shouldn't wonder. So let's start the ball rolling, shall we? Hmm. In the 2.15 race at Air, number one, Can Can, the top weight, a uh, mare trained by Nick Alexander, ridden with a bit more restraint over course and distance last time. That worked well in a novice hurdle for mares. Into Handicap Company here off a mark of 106. I think Bruce Lynn will attempt to execute similar tactics here, and I hope that it can result in another victory. 2.10 race, sorry, 2.15 race at Air. Selection is number one, Can Can. No to the grindstone, uh, David. Uh, have a very happy Christmas, so I don't speak to you between now and then. Uh, and indeed, a, a hopefully a, a very profitable and productive 2022. Thank you very much for listening. We will be back again tomorrow. That was Tuesday, December the 21st. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and thoroughbred racing commentary. Mm-hmm.